Kia ora koutou and welcome to Tahuhu Korero, a podcast and blog that shares the history work of students and staff at the University of Auckland and the aim of improving the accessibility and inclusivity of the study of history. Kia ora koutou and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Michaela Salway and I am a master's student here at the University of Auckland. Joining us today, again, thank you very much, Katie, for coming back. Hello. (laughs) Katie's been on a couple of our past podcasts before. So um, if you want to hear a bit more about her journey here at the University of Auckland, definitely go and check those ones out. But joining us for the first time, which is quite exciting, we have Associate Professor Malcolm Campbell. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what you study, what you do, what you research, what you possibly teach here at the university? Sure. I came to the University of Auckland to teach Australian history, and I still sometimes get to do that. The other things I teach are Irish history, and I'm interested in a range of things, global history, empire, and things like that. That's really interesting. Thank you. I don't think we've had a global historian on here yet, which is No, I taught the cool. global. I taught a global history course for a long time. Oh, no way. I tutored that, which is really exciting. Huh. That's very cool. I was there at the beginning. It's a long story and I can tell it on another occasion. (laughs) The next podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's always another one. (laughs) And then joining us as well is Dr. Sarah Buttsworth. Thank you for joining us today. It's totally going to be fun, but I've got the glee fondue for two riff going through my head. You You guys need a theme song, I think. Yeah. We have a bit of a a, a jingle, which is quite exciting. Okay. Yeah, actually, that'd be really cool to have like a song. I feel like it'd be a bit different. We have my brother-in-law does sound and audio at SAE, and he he composed us a little thing for the beginning, which is quite cool. But yeah, I feel like some kind of like... We need a music student. thing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be really cool. (laughs) You need your own earworm. We do. (laughs) Mm. Do you know how excited I am that that's become more of an English thing? Because... I studied German in high school and I would be like, oh, this is such an airworm. And everyone's like, what the heck is an airworm? I'm so (laughs) excited that more people say that now. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) getting back to the topic. So today we have quite an interesting topic. I think I I say that at the beginning of every single podcast (laughs) that we do. But I think it's very interesting that as historians, we can often think about just one thing or we can become very focused in our research in one topic. But With this podcast, I've really enjoyed being able to branch out and look at some things that maybe we don't normally look at. And this is kind of not so much in response to anything, but I think it's more a topic that we really wanted to cover. We've we've talked about feminism in some of the past ones. We did History of Women's International Day with Professor Jennifer Frost, which was really exciting. And that was a really interesting discussion that we had. But this, I think, is a a bit more of, of... the theory behind how we study women. And we're going to do two sections to this podcast like we've done with a couple of them. We did that with Professor Janet Davis. We had two sections to that podcast, so we split it in half. We'll see how long this one takes. That conversation went on for about an hour and a half, which was really (laughs) interesting, but was quite long. So we'll see how this one goes. But as you can probably tell by the title, yeah, we're going to be talking about some women in history that you might not have known about before, but have made some significant contributions or just women that are important to us and that have possibly influenced our academic journey or just our journey as people. And then on the other side of the coin, we are going to be looking more at the theory behind history and how how we tell women's history or how we do gender history, who can tell it, and kind of get, I guess, more into that discussion that I think all historians probably have to decide upon at some point is how we tell history and 
who should tell history. There's this massive debate that we had to do in honours on what is there a right way to tell history? Do we have to write it academically or are there, are there different ways, whether it's through film and all that kind of thing? So I think it's it's not just that, but it's who tells what history, I think, is an interesting side of this. So that's a little bit about what about what we're going to be covering today. So what we're going to start off with, I think, is a couple of us have a woman that we have profiled that we'd like to talk about. So I think Katie is going to start with Ruth Ross, who she actually covered for her dissertation topic, which is really interesting. Did you maybe want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll just go through, I think, and give a little bit of a biography of her and the work that she does. And then at the end, I'll talk a little bit about my experience researching her. Yeah. So she was born in 1920 and she lived until 1982 and she was a highly respected historian situated at the forefront of public history research in New Zealand. She was particularly well known for her work involving the Treaty of Waitangi, the New Zealand Historic Places Trust, the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church and the Melanesian Mission. After studying at Victoria University from 1939 to 1941 under J.C. Beagle Hall and F.L.W. Wood, Ross worked at the Department of Internal Affairs Centennial Branch, where she refined her research skills and developed close working relationships that continued into her later life. A significant span of Ross's life was devoted to her work with the New Zealand Historic Places Trust and the Buildings Classification Committee, and her associated work on Pompalia House and the Melanesian Mission Museum, which is a tongue twister, Melanesian <laughs> Mission Museum. <laughs> later in her life, she held a three-year fellowship in the History Department here at the University of Auckland. Through her revised interpretations of the treaty, Ross was at the forefront of a profound change in New Zealand historiography. She began working on an empirical analysis of the treaty and its associated documents during the 1950s, where she was involved in editorial work on the facsimiles of the Treaty of Waitangi, which were produced by the government printing office. This project was later abandoned by Ross as she felt that more archival research was needed on the treaty and that she was not capable of doing so due to family commitments. In a letter to J.C. Beagle Hall in 1957, she explained that, quote, archives must be searched systematically for this treaty job, and they can't be done by hidden-run research raids from Hokianga. Maybe when both kids are away at secondary school, I'll feel more like tripping around. Money isn't a stumbling block. It's just that I'm damned if I'll leave Ian and the kids to struggle along on their own, end quote. Which I think really speaks to the, the dual role of women as historians and their family commitments and how it can be a struggle to balance both of them sometimes. So she abandoned uh, the facsimile project and turned her attention to other projects, such as the Primary School Bulletin series. The series offered Ross the opportunity to convey her ideas in an experimental style, part history, part fiction, to primary school children in New Zealand. So during the 1950s, she produced one post-primary school bulletin, three primary school bulletins, and five additional stories for the school journal. In 1972, Ross published a seminal article, Deteriority or Waitangi, Texts and Translations, in the New Zealand Journal of History. The groundbreaking analysis that she presented in this article came to shape and underpin the debates over the meaning of the Treaty of Waitangi, which occurred both within academia and in the public sphere for the next 30 years. In this article, Ross argued that Pākehā society routinely ignores the fact that the official Treaty of Waitangi is the Te Reo Māori version that was initially signed at Waitangi on February 6, 1840, and other locations across the country at later dates. Ross's argument represented a fundamental revision of how the Treaty of Waitangi is interpreted and analysed by Pākehā historians, as the primacy of the English version has stood unchallenged and automatically accepted, both within the historiography and in legal debates. Following the publication of her article, Ross continued to work to educate the public about the treaty through her involvement with the New Zealand Historic Places Trust, in particular, 
their book Historic Buildings of New Zealand, North Island, which was published in 1983. The book was designed to be more than a coffee table book to be casually leafed through. Its purpose was a historical account of the individuals, families and communities who lived in the houses and used the buildings described in the book. As well as a history book, it's also a picture book, with each chapter accompanied by photography, drawings and paintings that illustrate the houses and buildings that are detailed in the book. Her five contributing chapters, in particular a chapter on Waitangi Treaty Houses, demonstrate how Ross turned her research and the knowledge gathered from her academic work into a public history with the intention of educating the New Zealand public on the treaty. So her papers can be found at the Auckland War Memorial Museum's archives. Um, her papers fill 84 boxes, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of papers. And they include documents such as personal letters, also manuscripts, meeting notes. And her letters are filled with quite honest and frank opinions, which offer great insight into her life and perspective on New Zealand history. And it made it really fun to read through because her opinion and her personality would really shine through her letters. And you could tell when she was being sarcastic, or when she was mad about something, or it was really fun to read her own mind in that way. I'll finish off with a quote from one of her letters because I think it represents her and her work really well. So she said, I think we all, Māori and Pākehā, politician and man in the street, need to know a, lot, a great deal more about Waitangi, the background, the meaning, the effect of the treaty, and the changing background, the changing meaning, the changing effects over the last 138 years. Which is very much about educating people about the Treaty of Waitangi, which I think was really interesting and, and the work that she did was so different and when I wrote my dissertation, no one had really looked at that New Zealand Historic Places Trust book before. So it was really about looking at her her work on the treaty over a longer period of her life. And yeah, that is so fascinating. It's it's really cool to see the culmination of that all come together. Because I guess since we did honors together, I heard bits and pieces about it. But yes, I know more about the importance of Ruth Ross, but not so much what she was looking at. So thanks mm. for sharing that. That was really interesting. Malcolm, did you have anything that you wanted to say? Sure. I thought I'd draw upon someone from Australian history. Perfect. And that's a figure who became known uh, in inadverted commas as the last full-blooded Tasmanian. And that's an Indigenous woman named Truganini. So Truganini was born in around 1812 and on the island of Tasmania or Van Diemen's Land, as it then was, was a place undergoing change. It was a place where sailors were arriving, sealers were landing and it had a profound impact on the Indigenous population of the, of the island. Truganini was the daughter of an Indigenous leader, and her tribe and her family members became increasingly affected by the European presence. I think her mother was killed by a sailor, her sister was abducted by sealers, and it was a world, in a sense, of enormous change, enormous transformation. And as Europeans then came to Van Diemen's Land or Tasmania in increasing numbers, the question arose about what would happen to the indigenous population who were on the land occupying territory that was wanted by Europeans for farming. And there emerged a, an English working class man, George Augustus Robinson, who's sometimes compared to a sort of Pied Piper character and who came along with a vision of trying to transform, in some ways protect the indigenous population, but also to work with Europeans to clear the land. And Truganini emerged as this cultural intermediary, really, who worked with Robinson in some ways, developed language skills, and worked with him in terms of that space between the Indigenous population and, and Europeans. And Robinson came and worked and eventually developed a scheme to remove the Indigenous Austra um, Australians from the island onto Flinders Island, off the, off the Tasmanian coast. 
And Truganini went with him when he took a group of Indigenous people onto Flinders Island with the idea of creating a new Christian working class settlement. And it became a terrible place in Australian history, a place where English working class cottages were established, where people were put in European clothes, taught Christianity, and the consequences were not surprising. There was a very high level of mortality amongst the Indigenous people, people stripped of dignity and autonomy. And Truganini was there. Truganini was there as the Tasmanian Aboriginal population on Flinders Island was decimated in this era of cultural change. And she later returned to the mainland in Tasmania, lived until 1876, and died at age 64. And she was long sort of known as the last of the full-blooded Tasmanian Aboriginals. I think the historical evidence suggests that she wasn't. But one of the legacies of that story and of the idea of a last Tasmanian Aboriginal was the notion that they were decimated and no longer existed. And that's a story that's had long uh, historical importance because when we came to the late part of the 20th century with the assertion of Indigenous rights, opponents of Indigenous uh, rights in Australia sometimes argued, well, there could be no rights for Indigenous Tasmanians because they died out in the 19th century. And that wasn't the case, of course. But Truganini stands out as this tremendously important mediator in this, in this era of change between the arrival of Europeans and the enormous impact that that had on the Indigenous population. I think she's a really interesting historical figure. Wow. That's so fascinating. I mean, I must say, personally, I don't know lots about Australian history. I feel like being so close to Australia, people go there and they visit these places. But it's one thing, like I've been to Tasmania before, but I've never learned about the history before. And that's heartbreaking. And Well, it's interesting because it's got a New Zealand dimension. And the very famous Australian historian, Henry Reynolds, uh, who had intimate knowledge of the history of Indigenous Tasmanians, has talked about some time ago the way in which there was a sort of a compact that developed around the movement of people onto Flinders Island. And I remember him arguing in a documentary that if Indigenous Tasmanians had asked for a treaty, if they'd asked to have it written down, that Flinders Island would be theirs, that they'd give up the, the Tasmanian mainland and move on, people would have just said, that's fine, that's what we'd agree to. And he sort of argued that the failure of that experience was something that prompted people to think more in terms of written treaties, right. which of course had significance for New Zealand, where one of the key distinctions was that Māori uh, were able to engage in a written treaty with Europeans. So there's a carryover, I think, across the Tasman Sea from the Tasmanian experience to Aotearoa and New Zealand. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Sarah, do you... Um, well, quite serendipitously, my story begins in Tasmania and then moves to New Zealand <laughs> because I thought I would talk about Etty Rout, who was born in Tasmania in 1877 and her family moved to Wellington in 1888. So we didn't plan this, but it has... Amazing coincidence. It is, <laughs> as so many things historically are. So it is really fascinating and I came across her because one of my interests is actually um, women and war and histories of women and war and the ways in which they have always been there but have often been written out or made less important. And it is really fascinating because she's really She's involved in all these different movements, but she rebels against them at the same time. So she's a suffragist, but she really doesn't get along with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She doesn't like them at all, and they really, really, really don't like her. She's 
involved in uh, physical culture and has a long-term relationship with Fred Hornibrook, who was uh, becomes this kind of superstar of physical culture. And they're in; they don't actually get married until she's in her forties. Um, but they've had this long-standing relationship of about twenty years, which for the turn of the twentieth century is unheard of. And she was; she's become particularly well known and not so well known for her role in trying to promote safe sex for soldiers in, during the First World War in Europe and in the Middle East. So in 19, she also was a trade unionist. She edited the Maryland Worker. And in 1915, the New Zealand Truth described her as a modern woman all through, socialist, hygienist, dress reformer, physical culturalist, unmilitant suffragette, vegetarian, cyclist, swimmer, ardent pedestrian and can use the foils and punching bag more than a bit. Incidentally, she's a qualified and registered law typist and knocks out more than a healthy living in her private typing establishment. She can type to dictation faster than any expert truth ever met and can wield her own pen better than many a hardened journalist. With her many gifts and accomplishments, she should have been a boy, but she's a jolly fine girl all the same. Um, And that comes from the New Zealand Truth on the 9th of January 1915. So she's kind of got her finger on all the pies um, <laughs> and she sets up a volunteer sisterhood which she makes look like is spontaneous but actually she's choreographed it fairly carefully and she's she makes sure there's enough people on the ground so that if people raise a ruckus about this not being a real thing she can say yes but we were all here and it's been in the papers and she had a habit of doing this she she was really careful about people she officially involved in things and she ended up being forbidden to go to Egypt and she basically said, screw you guys, I'm going anyway. She possibly used that word. I can't, that's not <laughs> quoting her directly. That's me, but you know. And off she went to Egypt where she set up a canteen that provided home comforts, including fruit salad and cocoa and wholesome things like that to soldiers while they were away and in the wake of Gallipoli. Partly an attempt to mitigate the kind of lawlessness that had taken place in Cairo when the Anzacs hit Cairo post-battles and were letting off steam. She she was firmly of the belief that if you gave them, partly if you gave them an alternative, that that kind of behaviour wouldn't occur in such a way. But she wasn't a prude and she definitely thought that sex was normal and she's an outlier, but she also was well aware of the much higher rates of VD among New Zealand and Australian soldiers than their British counterparts and was very, very concerned because obviously sick soldiers can't fight, so that's a thing, but also concerned about how they would be treated at home, but what they would be taking home to their families as well. So she starts to think about how can I promote safe sex and she starts to talk about the need for licensed brothels that goes down like a lead balloon and there, and she creates all sorts of ruckus and then she moves to the European theatre where she tries to work with British authorities and with New Zealand and Australian authorities to set up similar kinds of ideas about what we can do for the soldiers, acknowledging they have these natural impulses and they're faced with death and horrible things. So the first thing they're going to want to do is have sex and we should be able to, they should be able to in a safe way. The treatments for VD are at this stage of the game pretty horrendous. But she decides that prophylaxis is really important and she's not talking about moral prophylaxis, which has been the main tool up to this point with priests preaching about prostitution, bad, marital sex, bad, alcohol, bad, you're all better than that. That obviously wasn't working. And neither were the graphic descriptions of what was going to happen to you and neither were the 
expose yourself to the medical officer in front of your regiment. That wasn't working either. That was not a deterrent. So she decided that actually what was more important was that you set up safe and clean facilities. New Zealand refused to endorse this and any mention of her in the papers was censored. She's been censored out of the papers at the time. And she was then censored out of the New Zealand versions of the First World War histories. So this is where it gets really interesting, kind of taps into what you want to get into in the second half. Um, She appears three times, I think, in C.E.W. Bean's official history of the First World War in Australia. And there's a footnote in the medical history. She doesn't get mentioned at all in the official history of New Zealand in terms of the First World War. So she, she was not only censored at the time, but she's been censored out of the history that was produced about that time too. She has reappeared. She's not invisible. People know about her. A lot of people don't know about her as well. But she's, she continues to be this contentious figure. And unfortunately, she died lonely and, and kind of everyone thought she was a bit bonkers by this stage in Rarotonga in the, I think it was the 1930s, 1940s, must have been the late 1930s. Maybe it was later than that. Sorry. Date, I'm a historian with a terrible head for dates. Um, <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. It is, it's a job qualification. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I was thinking about Condi's crystal and it wiped all sorts. Of, so the, the treatment, I just I have to tell you what the treatment was. So the treatment, <laughs> calomel ointment inserted into the urethra with a syringe. Calomel is basically um, mercury. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so mercury kills everything pretty much. So that's why it's effective against syphilis pre-antibiotics. Uh, and Condi's crystals, which is um, potassium permanganate, which not only is a little bit like applying bleach to very delicate areas of the body, but turns them purple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Actually-o. laughs> yeah. So good to know. And aren't we all happy that penicillin got invented when it did? <laughs> Unless you're allergic to penicillin. (laughs) Ah, yes. But there are far easier ways to avoid STDs in the 21st century than having to rely on those kinds of things. So, Mm. Interesting. Mm. They've been kind of interesting to the other ones, I think, but definitely interesting. (laughs) So I'm going to take a little bit of a different stance. I guess, guess a lot of you guys have done a bit more closer to home. I'm jumping over to the other side of the world. And my inspiration comes from a series that we're doing on the podcast with Badger Dowd as well from Auckland University of Technology. We're currently doing a series on women in the two ages of wonder. And we're profiling different women who were prominent figures in science, but either weren't credited for it because they were women and they weren't allowed to be, or because the men almost controlled how that was, how that story or that narrative was written. And so they were essentially written out of it. So during my research for that, I came across another woman that we unfortunately didn't have time to cover in that series because we we kind of got quite a few notable people that we wanted to cover. And so I thought, well, why not cover her here? Because then I get to talk about her and it's super exciting. So the woman that I am covering is Cecilia Payne. Yeah, I guess I'll just get straight into her history because she had some incredible opportunities. But I think because of the time that she was working in, she faced a lot of opposition because she was a woman and it was specifically because she was a woman. And there were also many things that she just wasn't able to do. So Cecilia Payne was born on May 10th, 1900, and she was born in Wendover, England, to her father, Edward John Payne, who was a musician and fellow at Oxford University. And her mother was Emma Leonora Helena, who was a skilled artist. Unfortunately, due to a an accident that occurred with 
I think, a canal near where they lived. Her father tragically passed away when Payne was only four years old, and that left her to be raised by her loving but apparently quite strict mother. Um, one good thing that Payne's mother ensured was that all of their children were well-educated and as, as well as they could be. So this did actually actuate into something because Payne's siblings became archaeologists and architects, and then she herself became an astronomer. Cecilia Payne knew from quite early on that she wanted to become a scientist, and in 1919 she enrolled in the University of Cambridge, which she actually attended on scholarship. She majored in physics, and throughout her time at Cambridge she had the opportunity to attend a lecture by Sir Arthur Eddington, who had confirmed Einstein's theory of general relativity on an expedition to the island of Principe. I'm probably going to say that wrong, I probably should have looked it up. But yeah, so she had a chance to talk to Arthur Eddington, and it was in fact Eddington who inspired Payne to follow her passion for astronomy. So after her studies concluded, Payne wanted to further her passion, but she felt like she'd have more opportunity as a woman in astronomy in the United States rather than Britain. So she applied for and received a fellowship to study at the Harvard Observatory in Massachusetts under Harlow Shapley. While she was at the Harvard Observatory, Payne worked alongside other notable astronomers such as Edward Pickering, Annie Cannon, Williamina Fleming and Antonia Mori. These researchers notably created a classification system that sorted stars into seven types based on their spectra, which corresponded with the surface temperature of the stars. Using this discovery, along with the work of an Indian astrophysicist, Meghnad Saha, who showed how to use an equilibrium equation from physical chemistry to relate the ratio of excited states to ground states and the fractional of ionized states to the temperature, electron concentration, ionization potential, and the other properties of the stellar atmosphere. Payne recognized that stars were mostly composed of hydrogen and helium and that they did not, in fact, actually have the same composition as the Earth's crust, which was traditionally believed by astronomers of this time. This is something that she tried to publish as her PhD, and she actually received a lot of opposition from academics in astrophysics at the time. One notable one was the astronomer Henry Norris Russell, and it actually took him until 1929 to concede that she was actually correct. So despite this notable discovery, and that she was indeed admitted to research at the Harvard Observatory, Payne was not actually allowed to submit her PhD thesis, as Harvard did not grant doctoral degrees to women at this point in time. So instead, she had to submit her thesis to Radcliffe College, entitled Stellar Atmospheres, and with this, she began to revolutionise the field of astrophysics. An article published about her in the American Physical Society Journal argues that Payne's work profoundly changed what we know about the universe. It states, quote, that the giants Copernicus, Newton and Einstein, each in his turn, brought a new view of the universe, but Payne's discovery of the cosmic abundance of the elements did no less. Just as a side note, I just wanted to read something else that it said. Cecilia Payne, after she handed in her thesis, wrote about how she found her doctoral journey. It was a really interesting comment that she made, and I think it's something that all of us as students can relate to. She says, Harlow Shapley liked to say that no one could earn a PhD unless he had suffered in the process. As she neared the end of her doctoral project on stellar spectra, Cecilia Payne wrote, There followed months, almost a year as I remember, of utter bewilderment. Often I was in a state of exhaustion and despair, working all day and late into the night. Something that is... Very relatable <laughs> as a student myself, I have to say. So after she handed in her thesis, Payne continued on as a technical assistant at Harvard. At this time, women were also not allowed to advance to the title of professor, and her pay grade was substantially lower. 
So in the meantime, she focused on publishing books on her research. However, one thing that is notable is that in 1956, Payne achieved two firsts. She was the first woman to be appointed as a professor and the first female department chair, which I didn't actually know about the first time I researched her. I was going through and I was like, whoa, there's this woman who's revolutionizing astrophysics and everything that we know about stars. And then I went back over it and realized that she was the first woman to be given the title of professor and a department chair, which was just incredible to read about. And just to finish off, I just wanted to do a comment that has been made about her PhD thesis by the astronomers Otto Struve and Walter Ziebergs. So they called her thesis, quote, undoubtedly the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy, which is interesting because in the first place, it almost wasn't even allowed to be submitted. She wasn't, as a woman, allowed to submit her thesis to Harvard. And then it was also publicly discredited. So the fact that this led on to so many further discoveries in astronomy and that it changed the way that astronomers understood and studied the universe, I think, is quite interesting. So... That's my short little extract, something that obviously I wasn't able to cover in as much detail as we have done with the other women in science, but I thought that it was just, I think, interesting to see women in academia, the other women that we've talked about, weren't so much in academia so far, or it was more to do with the jobs that they were doing and the field they were working in, but the fact that, yeah, she was able to continue on as a researcher and then become a, pref a professor is just, yeah, I find it really interesting. <laughs>